Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Reinhold Medina. He's a professor of diabetes and vascular medicine. Uh, He's part of the uh, diabetes and vascular stem cell research group leader. And um, we're going to talk about uh, his work. So, Reinhold, thanks for coming. Uh, Thank you, Richard. Thank you for the invite. Yeah. Why do you you focus on diabetes? What spurred your interest in it? Diabetes is, is a major disease. My research was interested in blood vessels. In, in diabetes, I mean, everybody knows about the, the insulin, the high glucose, but really what impacts the quality of life in, in diabetes is the blood vessels. So all the complications in diabetes, whether it's eye disease, kidney disease, heart, stroke, you name it, it has to do with blood vessels. Um, so having done my research in vascular biology, then I thought that one of the areas where it's, it has multiple applications would be in, in diabetes research. So what are you studying about blood vessels? Like what happens to them when someone has diabetes? In diabetes, the blood vessels are particularly sensitive um, to the high glucose and inflammation and oxidative stress. So uh, basically in diabetes, what happens is that um, the endothelial cells, which are the cells that line up uh, the inner layer of our blood vessels, they basically die. And um, you get this, what we call a cellular capillaries, uh, defunct uh, blood vessels uh, and they close down and basically your the, the blood perfusion circulation uh, decreases to all the tissues uh, and that's that's basically why you get complications in the eye in the kidney in, in, the, in the brain and the heart so it's basically degeneration of of your capillaries of your blood vessels because uh, of the diabetic environment killing your endothelial cells oh i thought it was that the um i guess the capillaries would I don't know, I guess pinch off and, uh, and collapse, but is it, um, so it affects all the endothelium uh, all yes. at once? Well, some particular vascular beds are more sensitive than others. That's where you get the complications. So one which is of particular interest to us is the retina. So the, the retinal vasculature is particularly sensitive to diabetes. Uh, so all endothelial cells will be um, affected, some more than others. And again, it's a difficult question because, uh, again, depends on, on the patient. Some patients live with diabetes for 10, 15 years, and they have no complications whatsoever. And then you have other people that uh, five years and they have massive complications in the eye, in the kidney, in the brain. So it's really one of the big unknowns in diabetic, diabetes biology is why some pa- patients do find their blood vessels are resistant and why in others they, they are all broken. But yeah, so what happens to uh, the capillaries? You know, have, have people done like micro dissections to look at them? Is it that the walls become leaky? Do they collapse? Like what yes. happens? So uh, what happens is that it's, um, so there's, there are four or five or many more um, theories in relation to the molecular pathogenesis of, of diabetes. So basically, um, uh, most of them link to oxidative stress and inflammation. So the high glucose will increase glycolysis, that will increase uh, oxidative stress, reactive oxygen species, 
inflammation, uh, lots of inflammatory cytokines increase. Uh, so there are multiple um, molecular mechanisms which in the end damage the endothelial cells um, and these endothelial cells um, die. And once you start losing endothelial cells, uh, your capillaries, as you say, they collapse. Um, and when you get uh, some collapse in the, you, you get um, also, as you, as you also mentioned, the leakage. So you, your blood vessels start to leak because you're losing endothelial cells. So those are, are characteristics of diabetic retina. So you get acellular capillaries where you basically your, your capillaries collapse and you also get vascular leakage. And, vascular, and actually diabetic macular edema is basically the leakage of fluids out of, of your capillaries which are damaged. So those are, are major key complications in diabetic retinopathy, so in diabetic eye disease. Why do you think that uh, endothelial cells are particularly vulnerable to, uh, you know, to damage? What, what do you think is happening with, uh, I guess, the, them seeing and a high insulin and then high sugar, you know, in a, in a, probably in a seesaw pattern over and over and over when, in people that have diabetes? It's really unknown, but one of one of the things that uh, I think and most people will agree is actually our blood vessels are are almost our first line of defense because the, anything that comes through the blood to any tissue to the liver, the brain, the heart, it comes through the blood, and what carries that's in within the blood is actually it will the first cell that get in touch with the blood are the endothelial cells. So if there's anything that is wrong in your blood, it's gonna be the first point of contact will be the endothelium. Um, so, I mean, the blood vessels is not only the bad, but it's also the good. So basically the, the, the blood vessels carry oxygen, nutrients, but at the same time, they also take out all the toxic waste from your tissues. So uh, really blood vessels have a major function to play in, in human physiology and, and um, in diabetes or in other diseases, they are one of the, the cells that gets first impacted. So if you have, uh, for example, an, an infection, sepsis, that's in your blood. So and basically your, your endothelias will be directly in, in touch with whatever is in your blood, bacteria, virus. Um, even now with COVID, you would see that many of the complications are related to uh, vascular complications. So thrombosis, stroke, um, heart failure. And that's because uh, again, the blood vessels, COVID would be in the blood and then the endothelias would be basically in, in direct contact with those virulent pathogens. I would think that the endothelium, they see the highest concentration of insulin, they see the highest concentration of sugar, so they're exposed to the, the biggest gradients that change the most over time versus cells in the, you know, that have to rely on um, you know, insulin and sugar going through the interstitium to reach them. So maybe that's why they cycle the hardest, they cycle the deepest or the biggest, you know. Uh, well, to a certain degree, yes, um, uh, but the, the, you would be surprised that the endothelium has a, a very um, fine-tuning regulatory system to control uh, how much glucose goes in. So there are glucose transporters, um, the glycolysis, uh, it reaches threshold and it just shuts down. So when we do experiments in the lab with endothelial cells and high glucose, um, so the, the, the levels of glucose in a diabetic patients, um, normally you will have three, five millimolar uh, diabetics if you're there and control, you'll have 10, 15. When, you, when we do that in the lab, basically, when you increase the high glucose in, the, in, a, in a petri dish in endothelial cells, they basically shut down um, their transporters. So if you put more glucose, uh, the, the cell senses that increase and shuts down their transporters and doesn't allow more glucose in. So there are many molecular mechanisms that allow the, the, some level of resilience uh, to the cell. So 
even though it's, it's one mechanism, there are certainly others. Inflammation would be a, a key one in diabetes, which again, the endothelial cells um, are pretty sensitive to that. For a given cell in the endothelium, it would be exposed to the blood on one side. So yes. I would think that the blood would be the place where you'd see the most fluctuation in various hormone levels, sugar levels, et cetera. And if I'm, you know, 10 cells deep away from a blood vessel, I'll, I'll still see things, but it'll be less. I won't be exposed to these, you know, these constant, like high fluctuations of things. I mean, even though I can, That's, yeah. you know, shut down my transporters, but it's like, I guess it's like living right off a highway ramp. That's you know, you're correct. Yeah, to yeah, tons yeah. of cars. Yeah. That's 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 correct. Yeah. So you're right. So it's 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 the hormones, the glucose, uh, what I was mentioning, inflammation. So uh, your immune cells that circulate in blood, when you have uh, inflammation, uh, they secrete lots of inflammatory cytokines that circulate in blood. So again, if you're in the highway, th those cells are going to be in touch with all those high levels of cytokines. Um, so that's that's yeah. You're you're completely right. So they are they are there uh, where where everything happens. Yeah. So what are you trying to figure out? How to uh, conduct an intervention to heal people's ep epithelium? Like maybe there's a, you know, a positive side, maybe the epithelial cells, because they're so used to these, uh, you know, there's so much action that maybe they heal faster. I don't know. Maybe they respond faster. Uh, yes. So um, basically um, there are, there are a couple of, of ways uh, we, we believe the endothelium can repair itself. Um, so one is endogenous repair. So any, any system will have progenitors and stem cells. Uh, so the endothelium or the vasculature is no exception. So we, we think there are stem cells and progenitors within our blood vessels that can repair uh, any damage that is caused by diabetes or, or, or by any other insult. Sometimes that repair is not enough. Uh, or maybe the, the repair is, is reaches a threshold and it can't do anymore, it can't recover, the damage is too big. So in that case, what in the lab, in my lab, we're trying to do is to develop cell therapies. So we're trying to isolate stem cells, progenitors um, in, in the lab uh, from, from one of the sources we use is umbilical cord blood, uh, which is a rich source of progenitors and stem cells. And we isolate cells from umbilical cords uh, we characterize them in the lab. Uh, we we define its purity, its potency, um, and and we test them both in vitro and in preclinical animal models to show how can by injecting these cells we can basically um, form new blood vessels where they are needed. So diabetes is one one certainly one big area, but any 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 tissue that suffers ischemia, stroke, heart attack, critical limb ischemia. Uh, we can actually inject, uh, in the future, we hope we will be able to inject these um, uh, progenitors stem cells, endothelial progenitors or endothelial vascular stem cells, and they will be able to form new blood vessels so that they can provide perfusion to an ischemic limb, ischemic heart, ischemic retina. So that, that's the, the, the ultimate goal, I would say, so to create a cell therapy that can be delivered to an ischemic tissue. So are you trying to build new blood vessels or are you trying to repair the existing vessels? Uh, both. So we, we build new blood vessels. Uh, we can do them both in, in, the, in the lab uh, and, and then implant them in a gel, or we can actually inject the cells as there are, a suspension of cells. And we have evidence that when we do that in, in animals and models, in mouse, in rats, the, the actual cells that we inject, for example, in a, in a retina, in an ischemic retina, um, they can actually form self-assembled blood vessels within the ischemic retina and help repair the, the mouse vasculature. So 
Um, I think this all depends on the cell that you use. So, I mean, in, in the field, in the, in the stem cell field, stem cell therapies, there's been a lot of uh, controversy and debate because um, the first generation of cell therapies was, was based on using bone marrow uh, stem cells, uh, which were very heterogeneous. Um, it's a mixture of all different cells and, and, and people um, were selling them as uh, stem cells. Now, they do contain stem cells, that's right, but maybe it's 1%, 3%, 5%. So it's not that when you were delivering bone marrow, everything is stem cells. In that sense, many of the what the people found in the labs in, in animal models, in mice, rats, sheep, pigs, it, it worked. Uh, but when we move onto human clinical trials, uh, we found out that basically um, it, things didn't work in, in, in patients as they did in animals. And... Um, there's, there's many publications, big meta-analysis where they have uh, put together 20, 30 clinical trials and, and the, the results are really disappointing. They say that these uh, stem cells injected into hearts, for example, uh, had minimal benefits. Then there was similar seminal meta-analysis for studies doing in critical limb ischemia and, and they were basically concluding that you have to inject cells into um, three or four patients to rescue one from a leg amputation. So, um, even though it's prom there's, there's something works, it's, it's really not as you would see in, in animals. Um, and there are many, 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 many reasons for that. Um, and one of, one of them that we were trying to address in the lab is about when you are uh, proposing a cell therapy or a cell product, um, you need to make sure you um, characterize the cell in terms of identity, purity, and potency. And that's something that for, for the cells we're working uh, here in, in Belfast, we, we isolate the cells from core blood. We, we call them endothelial colony forming cells, uh, ECFC. So these cells we have characterized very clearly in terms of identity. So we, we run um, different markers so we know exactly what we're working for um, with the purity is above 99%. We single cell clone the cell. So we get one cell and we expand it from one single cell into millions. So the purity is extremely high. And it's not only the identity and the purity, but also the potency. So when we use the cell in, in the case of blood vessels. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. The cell has to form a 3D vascular network. So we have assays in the lab, potency assays, where we can test the cell. It forms 3D network structures. Um, and also, as, as, you, as you mentioned before, uh, it doesn't have to be leaky. So the barrier function of the endothelium is very important. You want a blood vessel that is not leaky. So we also have assays in the lab that measures that uh, this monolayer of endothelial cells is, is, has a barrier um, uh, property. So, uh, I mean, all those uh, things that we seem very trivial and easy are very important because many of this was missing in all those clinical trials. So people were injecting cells with the hope that there were stem cells, but uh, there were very few of them to start with. The purity was very low and potency was never checked. So I think that's kind of put a major, major highlight in, in, in the field where we really need to be careful before we move things into clinical trials. What governs the morphology? So if I have a damaged vessel and then I have some capillaries downstream of it, do I inject the, the stem cells locally, you know, on the outside of the, uh, of the vessel and then they migrate towards the wall? If I inject them on the inside, the flow would carry them immediately down towards the capillaries, let's say, 
and then they may embed there. I mean, how do you make sure that the uh, stem cells are delivered to the right place and they take the right action you want? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very important question. So basically, what uh, we are on 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 a way to addressing some of those queries. So how how do we get the the right cell in the right place at the right time? So um, basically, what we have uh, up to now, we we're basically concentrating on what what to inject. So what type of cell, what phenotype, and how do we make the cell safe? So what you're asking me now is. Um, how do you know the cell reaches and it stays where it should be? And that's that's very important. And there's, we've done a bit of this. We're starting to, to work on that. So uh, we've done, so for example, why? how do you decide on local injection versus systemic injection? So do you inject um, systemically into the, the blood uh, or do you inject locally so in the case of the of the retina so as a model for for diabetic IDC so we use an ischemic retina uh, we have done intravitreal injection so we inject into the vitreous um, and the cells actually uh, deliver into the vitreous they actually reach um, the the retinal vasculature and incorporate and engraft into the retinal vasculature we also deliver them into the carotid artery of, of, of the mice and they also reach. So if you deliver them uh, systemically through the carotid artery, they will reach. If you deliver them through the vitreous intravitreal injection, they will reach. If you inject them in the, in the tailbane injection, so by the tailbane, uh, um, they will not reach because they will get trapped in the, in the liver and in the lungs. So uh, I guess uh, it will depend on, on, on the disease. So how do you want to inject, uh, and not only how, but when do you want to inject and where? In, in the case of the heart, for example, it's well known that um, if you have an ischemic heart, um, there, will, there will be an area which is completely dead, uh, so the scar tissue. Um, and there will be an area which, which uh, the clinicians call the penumbra area, which it's, it's a rescuable area. So it's, it's, it's the, the cells are damaged, uh, but it can be rescued. So if you do your injection, if you're going to do a direct injection into the injury site, you need to avoid the scars because there's no point in injecting your cells into the scar. The cells are just going to die within, within minutes or, or hours. Um, if you inject them in the penumbra, in, in the area which is, can be rescued, the cells will, you give the, the, the best chance to the cells to do what they can do. So um, it's, I mean, the, the, that's, that's a very important question what you say. So how do you make sure you inject the cells where they are, where they are needed? Um, and the other thing which we are uh, investigating is, 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 and this relates to all cell therapies, is when you inject cells, they usually go to damaged tissues, ischemic tissues, hypoxic tissues. So there's inflammation, there's low oxygen, um, and that will basically damage uh, your cells. So in many, in many studies and trials, they said, oh, we cannot find the cells. The cells die within days. Uh, and that's basically because the, the tissue is, is damaged. So, so what, what, what do people expect? You inject the stem cells, but stem cells are, are not superheroes. They, they're going to they're gonna die if they don't have oxygen. So um, one of the things we are um, studying in the lab is how, how can we make the cells uh, more resistant to hypoxia? So we are we're modulating microRNAs um, to basically enhance the survivability of the cell when they are injected into a hypoxic uh, tissue. You said uh, injecting into the penumbra first is the best. So it would seem like you need a series of uh, treatments where you inject into the penumbra, it shrinks it, and then you inject to the new penumbra, it shrinks it, you keep going until it winks out in the center and it, it, the, all the tissue unifies. And that way yeah. you avoid dead zones, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. That's uh, that's uh, the logical way and the way many many people think. So that's uh, definitely one way to go. So the size of the wound or the scar or the damage will determine if you need one treatment, two treatments, three treatments. Now the the other uh, approach which some labs are following is tissue engineering. So if you have, uh, in the case, for example, for wound healing, uh, which uh, we are collaborating with some labs here in Europe, in, in the case of wound healing, if you have a wound area which is too big, you can basically inject scaffolds, um, dermal scaffolds, so tissue engineer substrates uh, to replace the dermis, and you can make blood vessels within that dermis so that uh, instead of doing, as you said, start from the from the penumbra and go in. Instead of that's one approach. Certainly, you can certainly do that. Another alternative approach that it's been investigated in labs is just to put an, a scaffold, tissue engineer scaffold um, with cells, so that in one go you can just fill the gap uh, with uh, progenitors and stem cells, and obviously a, a tissue engineer substrate. And how do you know whether? Um the cells you put in will simply regenerate an existing vessel or if they'll grow a new vessel. What determines that? Um, so uh, we, in, in the models we have, we label the cells, so we are able to track the cells. So when we inject human cells into animal models, into mouse, uh, we can basically say, okay, obviously we do time point sampling and then we, we see the blood vessel and we see it's human and we see it has basically coalesced, it has joined with the mouse vasculature, it's perfused. So we can actually see, oh, this is a new blood vessel um, which is perfused and is linked to a mouse blood vessel. We can, sometimes we see a network, a nice network of two, but it's not perfused. So sometimes in areas, especially in, in, in penumbra areas or getting to the scar, we see areas where there is basically a nice uh, blood vessel, but it's not perfused and it's not really, um, fusing with the mouse vasculature is not perfused. So sometimes the, the progenitors do their job, they form a nice blood vessel, but they, they need actually to, to join with the vasculature uh, that carries the blood in, in, the, in the actual mouse uh, to, to actually have an effect. So that is, is something that it's, it's, it's quite important. So it's not only the matter of injecting the cells, the cells have to engraft and have to um, join uh, the vasculature. Um, so, um, that's, that's quite important in, in, in terms of, of cell therapy. So uh, for autologous on allogeneic therapies, it's, it's quite a, a big issue because uh, again, uh, when you're in, if, if we are to, to deliver uh, or develop this core blood cell therapy, we would need to uh, use immunosuppression or match the, the cell therapy products. The, the same way they, they match core blood or blood transplants, core, um, bone marrow transplants or core, or core blood transplants, you will have to match your product to the patient so that there's no immune reaction and you can get your, your cells there and graft um, for, um, for as long as, as they can be there. Yeah, but again, what factors govern whether a different cell wall will be repaired versus a new vessel grow? And which direction will the vessel grow and what will be the size of it? Like, you know, there's got to be a lot of communication from the cells around it, I would think, once they're engrafted. So how do you how do you modulate those factors? How do you know, okay, I want to grow a new vessel here. I don't want to just fix the wall. Yeah, so in, in, a, in a tissue, uh, there are some, um, some things that we know. For example, in a tissue, uh, the levels of BGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, 
basically will increase in, in areas of damage that are hypoxic. We also use hypoxy probes. So if you have a damaged uh, tissue, um, whether it's a heart, a brain, or a retina, you, you can use a hypoxy probe, which is basically a, a fluorescent uh, signal that, that basically levels your level of hypoxia. Um, and, and basically, you will, you will see that the blood vessels try to grow if it's too hypoxic, there's nothing there. Uh, but when there is um, some hypoxia, basically your, your um, remaining blood vessels surviving the damage, they will try to sprout and go towards the hypoxic area. And that's where we want to inject. And that's where we want to promote the repair in, that, in those areas which uh, have, for example, BGF and the hypoxia is not massive. So um, there's, there's certainly a lot of cues. I mean, I'm giving you the, the one that most people will describe, which is PEGF. It's the most uh, well accepted, but there are multiple other proteins that, that play a role in this uh, angiogenesis and we call it therapeutic angiogenesis. So it's, it's basically making blood vessels as a therapy. Um, and that would be very helpful for, for many ischemic tissues. Are you doing this right now in mouse, mouse models or where are you doing it? And, uh... What kind of wound morphologies or damage morphologies work better than others? Um, yes, so in, in, at the moment we are using all um, in vitro human models. So we are using uh, human cells in vitro in the lab. Um, and in terms of disease models, we're using mostly rodents, mouse. Um, and, and there are certain, in, in the case we're using, we are using diabetic retinopathy models, um, ischemic retinopathy models. Uh, critical limb ischemia models and wound skin wound models. So, uh, in all of those, the cells um, seem to work and seem to repair the the injury, the, the damaged tissue, form new blood vessels. But one of the, I mean, and this all again, it's a big issue in in our area, but it this translates to other areas as well. Is that um, mouse are not human, and, and sometimes uh, we forget that because we 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 get too excited with what we see in the mouse, and then we go to humans, and it's very different. It's a completely different story. Um, and one of the things uh, uh, um, that we do in the lab, and I, I still find it amazing, is that sometimes we go and create damage in a mouse, in a mouse, uh, in, a mouse in the standard lab mouse, the black mouse, the C57 black six. So if we go and obliterate and laser a, bus, uh, a blood vessel in the retina, in, in, the, in the matter of, of days, three days, five days, you, that blood vessel will revascularize and repair itself without any injection of, or any stem cell whatsoever. So really the, the therapeutic window for us um, to, to use and test the cells is, is very narrow in the mouse because the mouse um, has so such a potential to regenerate blood vessels. Uh, and this is not only in, in the retina, we also see that in other tissues. So obviously uh, humans, don't have or we have lost to a certain degree that level of repair. So uh, in, in, in humans, we're going to be facing much bigger challenges because um, that, that self-repair um, doesn't, doesn't happen as, as fast as in the mouse. Um, and the other thing is in the models, in the case of, mo uh, in the case of models, for example, um, so you, in lifespan of, of a mouse is one, two years, two years. Um, so when we have diabetic models, for example, um, really there's i mean they are the best we have but uh, we they don't really uh, replicate everything that we see in a diabetic patient so in diabetic patients uh, usually most of them develop complications after five ten years and obviously the longer your diabetes the more risk you have for complications in the mouse 
uh, if they only live two years, sometimes it's, it's, it's too short for, for the high glucose, for the insulin and all the inflammation to cause damage. So um, we see some damage. I mean, obviously there's, there is something, but the disease in the mouse is, is very different to the disease in the human. Well, can you make a mouse diabetic? I'm sure you can. And then what is what does its vasculature look like versus a mouse that's not diabetic? Yes, we, we do that and we see a difference. Um, so we, we can make them. We have both genetic models um, of, of diabetes. So the most commonly used in, in our labs is called the Akita, Akita mouse. Um, that's a type one diabetic model. Um, we also have the, we can actually um, uh, inject uh, a chemical called streptocytosin, uh, and that will basically wipe out the beta cells in the pancreas and, and, and induce um, high glucose uh, levels, um, hyperglycemia. And, and again, that's, that's also a type one diabetes model. And, and we also have transgenic DVDV mouse, which is a type two diabetes model. And in all those models, um, if you look at their blood uh, vascular beds, blood vessels, um, you see a level of, um, we call it rarefaction or dropout. So basically the vascular density um, decreases uh, in, the, in the diabetic animals, uh, but it's not as striking as you would see in, in, in the human. But I mean, that's the best we have and that's what we use and that's where we got our results, yeah. Well, what do you see? What does a, a diabetic mouse's vessels look like? You know, the capillaries versus the larger vessels. Uh, what are so, some of the major differences you observe? Yep. So the, the, the biggest, uh, one of the ones that we, we evaluate the most and is, is, is the most consistent and most akin or similar to humans is the vascular leakage. So you can actually evaluate and you start seeing a leakage in the mouse retinal vasculature after four or six weeks of diabetes. Uh, and that's something that you also, you, you can also uh, appreciate in, in humans. So the, the vascular leakage is one of the features that is, is very similar in mouse and human. Now the loss of blood vessels, um, you also see it, but in the mouse um, is not as, uh, as uh, striking as in the human. So we always see less blood vessels. Uh, so the vascular density decreases. There's less amount of blood vessels, capillaries in the diabetic uh, retinas than in the non-diabetic retinas. But as I was telling you, it's, it's, it tends to be um, no, uh, very sparse so you find an area so the retina is quite big uh, even though it's a mouse it's, it's, a, it's a retina and you will find an area which is normal and you will find an area which is uh, affected so it's you really need um, to look at the whole tissue to find areas where yes there is there's a defect but if you just look uh, in general you you'll probably struggle to find a big difference so you see that there's leakage okay and then yes. what about uh, complete collapse of some of the capillaries or the microvessels? Like, do you see that? Or, you know, does, what does the leakage turn into? Does it turn into literally just a vessel collapses and just becomes part of the, you know, the local environment? Or like, what happens with, with continued leakage? So the, the leakage, um, the, the, what the leakage of the blood vessels will induce, it will induce inflammation. So in, 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 in your retinas, in your eyes, when you get your retinal blood vessels leaking out, uh, and that's called uh, retinal edema, so diabetic macular edema. So that will induce inflammation, activation of your microglia, uh, and all that inflammation um, will basically deprive your photoreceptors uh, from, from nutrients and it will, the inflammation will damage the, the photoreceptors um, and, and, and that's both the edema 
and, and all the inflammation uh, will basically, in, in some, you basically get impairment of, of vision because the, 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 this area in the eye, in the retina called the macula, it's, it's particularly impacted uh, by this leakage. Um, and that's where you get accumulation of fluids in an area which has to be uh, basically intact because that's where your photoreceptors are getting your vision. And if you get leakage there, edema, fluid accumulation, uh, you basically get vision impairment. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite a big issue in, in humans when you get this. Uh, now it's, it's it, diabetic macular edema, actually it's one, it's treatable. I mean, you inject anti-BGF, so these patients will go into the hospitals and they will get their tests done. And then the, the ophthalmologist will basically give them an antibody against BGF. And when they get this intravitreal injector of anti-BGF, uh, in, in most of the cases, it's effective, and they will decrease the edema because the, the BGF will stop that that anti-BGF injected into the eye will stop that leakage, uh, and then they will they will recover their vision. So it's it's um, it happens, and it can be um, it can be treated. Yeah. So when there's leakage, what happens to the uh, the blood that leaks into an area? Does it? Uh... I mean, what happens to those those blood cells? Do they, I mean, do they become like fibrous? Do they cause damage? Do they form, uh, you know, what do they form over time if there's a, a pool of leaking blood in an area? Yep. So, so when, when we're talking about leakage, I mean, there are, there are different types of leakage or severity of leakage. So um, it doesn't have to be always just leakage of blood. Uh, it can be just a leakage of, of fluid, uh, serum, so proteins. Um, Obviously, if you, you can have leakage of, of, you can actually have what we call micro hemorrhages in the retina. So that also happens, uh, uh, but that's, that's a different story. So you can get uh, hemorrhages uh, and, and you can get it as bad as getting the, the hemorrhage can be as big. Uh, and if it's too big, it will, it will basically cause um, retinal detachment. So your, your retina will detach basically, and that's, that's very hard to treat. Uh, it's almost linked to blindness. So. Uh, again, the, the level of leakage will dictate um, basically how how much or how severe or how treatable it is. So you can get uh, small small uh, leakage uh, that can be treated easily if it's detected uh, early. You can you can get hemorrhages, smaller ones that can be treated, and big ones uh, that are not so good. And then what what's the time period from uh, first edema till I mean blindness and uh, you know significant problems in the mice at least. Um, well, in, in, in the mice, it's, it's hard to tell um, because as, as I was telling you, it's, 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 it's a limited lifespan. It's, it's, so it's basically they live for, for a couple of years. And in the models that we do, we do nine months. Um, so we do, in the mice, we, do, we have the same equipment. So we will evaluate uh, what we call the electroretinograms. So they, they do the same in humans. So basically they, they evaluate the function of your photoreceptors uh, and how they, how they respond to light. And um, we basically see at six months diabetes, nine months diabetes, we see very clearly um, that the mice, um, the electroretinogram um, shows a deficit uh, in the response in, your, in, in the mouse, in the diabetic photoreceptors at six months and at nine months. And that is not also evident in the electroretinogram, but it's also evident um, in what we call an op optokinetic response. So we put the mouse in a box uh, where they have to, uh, they are shown um, uh, uh, a series of, of um, black and white lines that are, are moving and basically the, the mouse uh, follows uh, the, the, these, these 
lines that are moving um, and, and we just basically trace the movements of the of their of their eyes and heads uh, following that and actually again that optokinetic response uh, is significantly impaired in in the diabetic mice um, so um, that, that's those are the readouts that we use in in the mouse um, to to assess obviously in humans you would you would just use visual acuity um, uh, and, and that's um, it's it's very interesting. I mean, in 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 humans, um, sometimes uh, and I, 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 when I chat with my clinical colleagues, uh, sometimes uh, it 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 amazes me that sometimes they have patients where their retinas, uh, their what we call the um, angiographs. So basically, the retinal angiographs is an, an image of the uh, they inject a, a fluorescent uh, probe that basically to image um, the it's almost an X-ray of the blood vessels in your retina, and and you can actually see where it's leaking, where uh, a capillary is occluded, so ischemic areas, a vascular areas. You can identify leakage. You can identify so these retinal angiographs will tell you how damaged is is the retinas, and, and diabetic patients will will go into these screening uh, units where where they are very closely follow up for development of any any of these issues in the retinas, and sometimes these these patients have severe leakages or, or vascular areas in the retina. So it's, it's, it's definitely there's something wrong with their blood vessels in the retinas, but the vision is, is normal. So they are compensating. So even though uh, their blood vessels seem to be um, not, not healthy, uh, their vision is normal. Um, so it's, it's something that, I mean, our, our, uh, our, our retinas, our physiology is, is, is amazing, where, where you can actually detect pathology, but the vision is, is normal. Now, the, the worry or the concern with, with that is that, uh, well, it's, it's, you see that the retinal blood vessels are damaged, uh, but the vision is normal. So uh, you probably start following the patient close up and, and, and making sure their glucose levels are fine, the blood pressure is fine. Um, but you never know if, if that's, that leakage will, it, it could change. It, it could be like that forever. The patient can never uh, develop uh, any vision impairment, but at the same time, in some other patients in a week or two, you, you have them back with, with major, uh, major uh, impacts on the vision. So it's, it really is, and there's something where, that's something where which my colleagues, the clinicians are trying to uh, study more is in relation to stratifying the patients. So all the patients that they see are diabetics, uh, but some have a, a, a worse um, diabetic retinopathy than others. So how long do you think you're gonna be able, I mean, are you working on like, are there, is there such thing as retinal organoids where you can get close to what happens in humans? And evaluate those, or are they not uh, sufficient enough? Oh, there are, there are. Yes, um, I mean we don't do that in in my lab, but um, um, I have colleagues here in the UK uh, and also in, in in other countries that are doing retinal organoids, um, and and that's an area of of, uh, of of big interest for for anybody because I mean obviously three D three D tissues engineering organoids in the lab. Uh, and th that are human, um, that will actually uh, avoid, and, and they may, there may be um, advantages to what we are using now in the animal model. So it would be a, a nice way to prove new therapies in the organoids before we move into animals or before we move into human trials. So 
I think that's an area that certainly deserves uh, lots of attention, and, and, and I'm really looking forward to, to collaborating with my colleagues here in the UK and, and abroad, because they, they, they are certainly developing um, retinal organoids. So using these induced pluripotent stem cells or embryonic stem cells, they are, they are making retinas in the lab, basically in vitro. They are growing retinas, in, in small retinas, uh, um, in the lab that we can use to study, for example, blood vessels. Can, can we make, can we reperfuse a, a, a retinal organoid? That's certainly something which is of major interest in my lab, yeah. Mm. Well, very good. Well, Reinhold, what's the best way for people to learn more about your work? Um, well, uh, I, I would say um, if, if people can follow me on Twitter, uh, I mean, any any publications, we'll put them there. Uh, so that would be Reinhold Medina Lab at Belfast. Um, we also have a website, which is Reinhold Medina Lab in Belfast. And um, and um, and yes, so that's uh, that's basically the way. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to, if people want to contact me by email as well. Well, very good. Reinhold, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Richard. Thank you for the invite. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.